Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. After Henry Hudson's voyage along the river that now bears his name, Dutch traders began to visit and trade in the region they called New Netherland. In 1614, the Dutch established a trading post near present-day Albany, the capital of New York State. In 1624, the Dutch West India Company built the settlement of New Amsterdam. How did the colony of New Netherland take shape and what type of labor developed it? Historian Andrea Mosterman recounts the fascinating early history of the colony and explores what life was like in New Netherland and early New York. There's so many layers to this story. In the case of New Netherland, what really is different is the labor they used to build the infrastructure of the colony. So they are the ones who dig the canal, help build the forest areas and so forth. They also help protect the colony. So there's actually enslaved people who fight in the Second Aesopus War, for example. There is a real difference from how individual enslavers, in most cases, they would have the people they enslave either help them with their trade or work on the land or work in domestics. So the labor was very different. Also, the way in which they labored. We know that the people enslaved by the company, there are several references to them working in chain gangs. And at some point, that actually becomes a punishment in the colony to work alongside the company slaves in the chain. So the way they labored is also different. Another thing that really distinguishes them in that sense is that because they're many, whereas individual enslavers would oftentimes have only a few people that they held in bondage, we see that they are able to build a community in a way that was really unprecedented in some ways. They are initially living in houses in what was then a very forested area, which I estimate to be around East 74th Street. And by the 1640s, they're moved into New Amsterdam. They live in a few different homes, but at some point they live in the house at the Slagsteeg, which today would be South William Street. So most of them would share that space. They would share that home. And that, I think, was a big part of them being able to create a community. They intermarried. They had children. They had other people and saved by the company serve as witnesses of their marriages and witnesses of the baptisms of their children at the Dutch Reformed Church. And so this was a thing that really distinguishes also the people who were enslaved by the company. And this also allowed them to really petition for their freedom and reach out to the company and demand certain things from the company, I think, because they already had that relationship with the Dutch West India Company. When we look at people enslaved by the company, so they would have predominantly been close to the forts, working there, also, again, helping build these forts and the various infrastructure. And really, when we look at just the labor, it would have been the same for the people enslaved by individuals. What I think is very distinct, though, is that there would have been fewer of them. So, for example, there's this case in Albany, New York, North Beverwijk. There's an enslaved woman who steals some goods from the person who holds her in bondage. And when she testifies before the court or the council, she explains that she did this in part because she was promised by the people that she gave these goods to her, that she stole these goods for. She was promised to be brought to New Amsterdam and that she could have a family there. 
And that case really stood out to me because I think it really speaks to the isolation that some of these enslaved people must have had in these regions where there really was not a substantial enslaved African population. So I think that that is what makes their experiences very different from the enslaved people in New Amsterdam. Half freedom has been used by scholars over the years to refer to these various people who were able to obtain a conditional freedom. And the first case that we see this happening is in 1644, when 11 enslaved men, they petitioned to the council for their freedom. And the council grants them that freedom, but under certain conditions. And in fact, it's not just them, their wives also gain this conditional freedom. And these 11 couples then are given land in Manhattan, north of New Amsterdam, but they are still required to pay the company a yearly fee. They also have to assist the company whenever it needs them. And their children, including the ones who were not yet born, would remain in some form of bondage. The council refers to it as Eigenen, which would be the Dutch word for serfs. There's another document in which they are referred to as slaves. So their status is a little complicated and unclear. The secretary of the colony later on in 1650 claims that most of them are not really working for the company, that most of them are living with their families, but they could be, of course, claimed to perform labor for the company at any time because they were not freed. So that's the 1644 case, and that's really the most famous one. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. When the English arrived in 1664, after the English conquest, what we see happening in the latter part of the 17th century is that slavery really does change in this region. I don't know if this has anything to do with the English conquest. And that's the big question that always comes up because it coincides with this change in regime, really. But we see similar changes happening in other colonies. We see similar changes happening in Virginia, for example. Slavery definitely does change. And this is in part, I think, because there is increased regulation of enslaved people. There's also the population grows, the free settler population grows, but also with that slavery expands and it becomes increasingly racialized. This causes significant changes in what slavery looks like. So most of the people in the latter part of the 17th century then are enslaved by individuals. We see that there's legislation that limits their movements, their activities, and these are really important changes. But again, I don't know if that has to do with the English conquest, because in some ways we see some of this already starting in the 1660s, slowly but surely, and it just extends after the Dutch lose the colony. 
for New York, the fact that enslaved people oftentimes lived in the same homes as their enslavers, worshipped in the same churches, worked alongside their enslavers, that is oftentimes very hard for people to comprehend that just because they might be living in the same home, that their experiences in those homes were extremely different and that they not inhabited the same spaces, as was the case with the churches. Like you might be worshiping in a Dutch Reformed church, but if you were an unsafe person, you would be doing so in a far back and you would not be holding communion in most cases with the white congregants. You would have to wait until after they had finished their communion. But because the way it is explained is that they shared these spaces, it is very difficult for people to really understand that that does not mean that it was not a very brutal system. And this is, of course, also very much in comparison to the images that often come to mind of slavery in the United States, in the South, and then the North, of course, being this free area. So I think that that also helped them embrace this idea that they were, in fact, anti-slavery. And if there was slavery in New York, then it wasn't as bad. It was more benign. So it was very pervasive way of thinking about slavery. And I think we really need to rewrite the history of slavery in New York to show that that is absolutely incorrect. Interestingly, during the era of slavery in New York, we see similar references to people actually threatening to send their enslaved person to the English colonies. <laughs> because they portray the English as being more cruel and savers. But James Fenimore Cooper's Satan's Toe, in which he describes slavery in New York and really portrays it in that way of they lived in the same homes and they were as part of a common family. And I do think that this is something that became more prevalent in the 19th century. And this all relates increasing to the paternalistic approach to slavery and enslavement. And of course, also the fact that New York at that point was really trying to align themselves more with abolitionism. And so how do you explain that you really for two centuries had enslaved people within your own homes, the homes that many of these people were still living in? How do you explain that and then also are able to portray yourself as an abolitionist or a free state that really is fighting slavery and that portrays slavery as this evil system when it's in the South? Well, then you also have to be able to make the argument that in the North, maybe it wasn't that bad. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.